Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Dr. Malone, welcome to the War Room. Uh, thank you. I'm I'm a little confused about this War Room versus Steve's War Room. Uh, so <laughs> help me to understand that. Yeah, uh, no no connection that I'm aware of. Just, uh, we both like a good name, I guess you could say. And so, um, yeah, we... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if Steve's show was around before ours or or not or whatnot. But anyways, it's just our war room, just like Steve is, is you know, we're here to try to have good, interesting conversations. And so we've had on um, on this issue, particularly uh, one of your colleagues, Dr. Peter McCullough. And also we've had on Gregory Zuckerman, who wrote the book, A Shot to Save the World. And so we've we've covered this issue um, around covid Try to be fair on, on all sides. And so, anyways, you do. You also have a new book coming out, as I mentioned in the in introduction. Last, my government told me, and the future, and the better future coming, children, uh, children's health defense. So, let's just unpack what's happened the past two and a half years, I guess, or almost three years, I guess. Well, yeah, two and a half years at this point. So, hey, good. We have about three hours to go. Yeah, yeah, we got all day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you lead because there's. There's so many portals of entry to try to comprehend this story. Yeah. And, and I think that no one um, point of view really allows you to fully grasp uh, what has occurred and for more important for your audience to fully grasp it. That's my, my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lecture on all kinds of different aspects of this, the WEF, the administrative state, uh, mass formation, uh, other psychological phenomena, including groupthink, um, and all the way down to the nuances of the RNA technology and the regulatory affairs aspects, not to mention uh, the bioethics. Okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning of 2020. Um, I, I know I've said on the show, but I'll say for you, you know, my stance has been and always will be that we shouldn't have shut down from day one, never thought we should have shut down. Um it seemed quite clear to a simpleton like myself uh, by the time the Trump administration talked about shutdowns that the evidence was clear uh, who even the study from London, who the evidence was going to impact uh, from China, Iran, et cetera. Where were you at when you were looking at the data in early 2022? So did you shift your position? Did you have a similar position? Where were you at before the U.S. started making its changes? You said early 2022. I'm sorry, 2020. I'm, I'm looking at your book over here. It says 2022. Early 2020, forgive me. So uh, where I was at at the beginning, and, and this I talk about this at length in the book and the opening chapters, um, uh, I received a phone call from Wuhan from a CIA operative that was there in the fourth quarter of 2019, who is our top uh arguably one of our top uh, biowarfare and gain-of-function specialists, a gentleman that I've known for years uh, that that often is brought into all kinds of hot zone situations on behalf of the government and has advised multiple presidents. And I've co-published with him in the past. So he called me from Wuhan 
on January 4th, approximately, and told me that this uh, novel coronavirus was turning out to be more of a problem than they had thought it was going to be, and uh, that I needed to get my team spun up. Uh, what that references, people are often confused by that. I'm, I've been a consultant for years and years working at the interface between industry, particularly in the biodefense sector, uh, really beginning after the anthrax attacks when I went to work for Dynport Vaccine Company. And by my team, what he was referring to is that I have an informal association with a large network of people that have responded in the past to outbreaks. And uh, more recently, Zika, uh, I co-published with this gentleman on both, uh, well, he wasn't on the threat assessment paper, the original threat assessment paper that was actually sent into the intelligence community because they were still um, having trouble grappling with what was going on in Brazil. Uh, but in two subsequent papers, he was a co-author. So uh, Michael calls me from uh, Wuhan, tells me to get my team spun up. And in this context, at that moment, I'm managing a group of scientists that are working under a Defense Threat Reduction Agency contract. And this is in the Chem Biodefense Division, which is different from the Threat Mitigation Division. The Threat Mitigation Division, if we read forward to last winter, I was the one that discovered that the threat that the threat mitigation division was still funding uh, DASIC and um, the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, and I believe they continue to do so to the present. And I and I did speak about that. Uh, um, so uh, I was helping manage this team of scientists focused on. Uh, identifying drugs as countermeasures for neurotoxins of various types and nerve agents in particular. And we were working on a big project. It was a pilot project for DITRA. It's now um, become more operationalized that involves uh, high-end bio-robot, high-throughput screening of drug compounds as well as computational screening. So this is molecular docking studies, which is at the forefront of computational drug discovery technology. And I got the group to uh, volunteer their time to uh, focus on screening compounds that would be active. And the way that I did that was that I obtained the initial sequence of the Wuhan seafood market virus when it was uploaded from China. I think this was on the 10th or the 11th of January. And then used software from UCSF, open source software, to uh, what's called thread or recreate a, a crystal structure of one of the two key proteases of uh, this novel Wuhan seafood market virus that was closely related to SARS-CoV-1. It didn't have a name yet. We now call it SARS-CoV-2. And so I used the latest uh, computational tools 
out of UCSF. And there are some that claim that I use secret uh, codes and secret information. That's all just fabricated lies. Um, uh, I used open source software available through UCSF to recreate the crystal structure of one of the two proteases, the papain-like protease. And I chose that after reviewing the literature of uh, protease inhibitors and anti-SARS-1 agents that had been tested and developed because it was clear that the majority of work had been done on the other um, uh, protease, the main protease, another serine protease. And I didn't want to compete with this already existing work. And I thought what we should do for a variety of reasons having to do with the biology was focus on the papain-like protease or C3L pro. Um, And so uh, we got very focused on um, computational modeling and screening using computer processes of the entire library of all drugs available for uh, both uh, nutraceuticals, licensed agents from anywhere in the world as potential inhibitors for this. And the reason we did that is because I did, as before, a threat assessment and determined that there was no way that we were going to be able to develop and deploy a safe and effective vaccine for this particular virus in any kind of a reasonable time frame to mitigate the risk. And uh, I still stand by that. Uh, we have uh, developed and deployed one. I argue that it is neither safe nor effective. And this is what the literature had taught. Uh, there was many, many attempts over the years to build vaccines for other related coronaviruses, including SARS-1, MERS, and the other human cold coronaviruses. In fact, I'd written a proposal to develop such a vaccine in the mid-90s using RNA technology, but it wasn't funded. So I, the, you ask where was I at, um, two things happened after I got that call from Callahan. One was that I kicked off uh, this uh, major effort that ended up um, uh, being funded at the level of uh, um, considerable tens of millions of dollars to uh, identify an agent or agents or combination of agents and then push those through the regulatory process into clinical research. Um, I was never involved in the vaccine development angle here, except as an outside critic and commentator. Uh, And I did attempt to intervene both with Nancy Pelosi and with Peter Marks. I did have a conversation with both about what was going on. Uh, and express my concerns and uh, request that the data be parsed for uh, um, risk by age uh, done uh, by the CDC. So that was the conversation with Pelosi. And with Marx, I clearly expressed my concerns about the preclinical package that had been revealed from the uh, Japanese regulatory authorities. Byron Bridal in Canada gets the credit for being the one to identify that package. So I was busily working along, um, trying to get money, uh, setting up uh, cooperative agreements, uh, discovered famotidine by treating myself, 
Uh, that ended up in a kerfuffle because the CIA agent trade claimed that he had discovered it. And that's a whole nother story. So I was very involved in trying to move forward alternative uh, treatment strategies and early treatment strategies. And the ones that we came up with in the end and moved in or attempted to move into the clinic was the combination of uh, um, in separate, uh, separate agents, famotidine, which is Pepsid. You may recall the Pepsid story early on. That was about me um, in my group. Uh, and by the way, uh, the press is wrong. Uh, and the Associated Press attack articles and the Washington Post attack articles, it's now been clearly shown that famotidine does have activity against uh, the COVID, um, particularly when administered early. Uh, and the combination of famotidine and celecoxib, which is very potent, and the combination of famotidine, celecoxib, and ivermectin, which is extremely potent. And uh, Celecoxib is an anti-inflammatory. The uh, FDA blocked our ability, and by our, at this point, I'm talking about the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, Defense Cert Reduction Agency, tried to get approval allowance by the FDA to proceed with clinical trials involving all three of these agents alone and in combination. Famotidine, famotidine and celecoxib, and famotidine, celecoxib, and ivermectin. And so the DOD made a strategic decision to just drop the arm that included the ivermectin. And the combination and single uh, famotidine and famotidine plus celecoxib proceeded. And uh, we developed quite sophisticated clinical trials uh, for that that um, uh, had, had a range of really high-tech bells and whistles uh, including a pioneering system for uh, um, uh, outpatient uh, clinical virtual clinical trials, um, uh, very sophisticated patient-centered uh, outcomes uh, assessment tool. And the FDA just delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed our ability to proceed with those trials. They finally got launched around Christmas time, at which time Omicron kicked in. And as I had predicted uh, on Laura Ingram, Omicron completely changed the game uh, because it was less pathogenic and so highly infectious and functionally acted like an infectious vaccine. That's, that's the big picture scope of what I did mm -hmm. in, um, uh, in terms of... Uh, trying to advance treatments. Uh, and these are all licensed drugs. So we would call these repurposed treatment strategies. Uh, and um, during that time, just to say it, because this is one of the things that's been thrown at me as a criticism by the paranoid uh, that I am controlled opposition, uh, on behalf of Defense Threat Reduction Agency for a period of time last fall through December, I sat on the NIH Active Clinical Trials Working Group Committee as a non-voting member at the request of DITRA so that I might gain information about how NIH was running its trials of drugs, both uh, new drugs and uh, repurposed drugs, through uh, six different clinical trial structures that they had. 
And uh, when I spoke out about some of the things that I had seen on the Rogan experience and in other forums, uh, the committee was, quote, reorganized and I was no longer invited to participate uh, at the beginning of January. Um, I was never a voting member and I was never involved in any of the vaccine development. However, um, one of the, uh, a Lieutenant Colonel, uh, I think he may now be Colonel that, uh, I had mentored years ago during, uh, the Ebola outbreak. I was at the tip of the spear in bringing forth the Ebola vaccine that we now call the Merck. Agency Canada. Um, and I worked uh, basically at the interface of a company called, um, I'm suddenly blanking on the name, uh, um, a private company that owned the rights from the Canadians. They bought it for about $200,000. And uh, trying to get that company sorted out, moving forward on that vaccine product. And then eventually I got it licensed to Merck. So I had worked with this lieutenant colonel back in the day on that project, and he had called me uh, during the outbreak after I started speaking out about the vaccines and told me, uh, basically confessed to me that he had been uh, appointed as the project manager for the Moderna project on behalf of the government uh, and told me what had gone on in that project and how badly it had been mismanaged and the uh, um, fact that the dosing choice was basically made on an arbitrary basis by committee vote with a split the difference strategy. So there had been groups that wanted a much higher dose, groups that wanted half the dose, and they split the difference. And that's how we ended up with Moderna at its dose and its higher toxicity relative to Pfizer. So that was my, those are my only direct touch points in the development of the mRNA vaccine products. Um, through most of this, up until when I started speaking out, I was working under contract uh, for various entities that had, I'd basically arranged to receive large contract uh, awards from Defense Threat Reduction Agency to move forward, uh, both identify and then move forward these repurposed drugs for early treatment. Does that cover the landscape? That, that's good. That's good. So um, when, when just to, maybe just a few touch points here, because I have, you covered so much. Um, so the shutdowns, lockdowns, whatever you call them, were you ever in favor of those, always against those, mixed opinions? What was your thought at the time that that happened? I was uh, not involved. But no, no, no. Just as, as, a, as a citizen, were you? Hey, this, I, wasn't, I wasn't engaged in that. Um, that whole lockdown story uh, was really not something that I was involved in or engaged in um, on social media or politically or otherwise. It was just I was focused twenty four seven on trying to identify, you know, you, it's hard to go back and understand um, for those of you that weren't at the, at the uh, bleeding edge on this thing. Um, when this thing hit, uh, 
it was mass confusion. Nobody knew what the heck was going on, the nature of the pathology. I was infected in the beginning, in the end of February of 2020, and it hit me hard. And the belief then, remember, I, my background is, is in pathology, mm-hmm. among other things. And the belief was that if you got the disease, you were going to develop pulmonary interstitial fibrosis, which is a long-term debilitating disease that would kill you eventually. Um, we were completely confused about the mechanisms of the pathology. I was the guy that came up with, together with others, with the thesis that it was uh, driven in part by mast cell responses, which is how famotidine works. Um, and uh, I was I was full on just focused on repurposing drugs, identifying repurposed drugs or new agents that would be active here, not in treating the virus per se. Um, we learned early on that famotidine was not working as an antiviral. It was working at the level of the mast cell and the pathology. And so we really became focused on what could we do to uh, treat the disease rather than block the virus. Okay. I had no opinion about the lockdowns or any of that. I wasn't following that until um, much later uh, when uh, uh, Peter and I, Peter uh, Navarro and I um, came out with some op-eds in the Washington Times, which basically endorsed the Great Barrington Declaration position with some minor modifications. And our position was that there should be home test kits made available so that people had the ability to self-assess whether they had actually had this virus or some other virus. And eventually the government did take that, as you may recall, most of us were shipped some Chinese test kit uh, in our mailbox. But at the time when we rolled that out and said that the lockdowns were wrong, we should be focusing on the high risk groups. We should be making uh, um, uh, diagnostic kits available in the home, uh, screening kits. We were uh, resoundingly attacked uh, for saying these things as mis and disinformation spreaders. Uh, Facebook uh, labeled uh, things from the Washington Times as mis and disinformation, which shocked the Washington Times at the time. This is, you got to remember, as you look back over time, uh, people forget what the history, the arc of history has been here. Um, You know, for many of us, as these uh, psychological operation strategies were deployed, those that were on the front edge, like myself, were among the first to receive them. And they were originally very, very confusing. It was confusing for the Washington Times why Facebook would be attacking them for this op-ed. Now, in after the face after the Washington Times op-ed came out with Navarro and I, almost immediately the Atlantic Monthly published the uh, um, defamatory attack article on me, um, saying that I wasn't uh, the original inventor and glossing over, not even mentioning the patents, etc. This has all been a coordinated propaganda campaign, but at the time when you're in the middle of it and it's happening to you and you're at the forefront, it's just confusion. Uh, It's hard to make sense out of it. So 
That Navarro op-ed is the first clear, unequivocal publication, uh, public statement that I made. Uh, although I, had, you know, this comes out of many meetings on Bannon's war room that preceded all of this that are available as recordings. Uh, so that's kind of all uh, last fallish, uh, summer and fall. Okay, and so you mentioned the vaccine. You said it's not safe or effective. One of the, the things I was reading, was, I guess, it would have been late twenty twenty, maybe uh, if I remember correctly. Um, there's a gentleman who was going through, I don't know if it was Moderna or whoever it was, but they were releasing information about the vaccine. And if I was reading his work, which is an interpretation, um, he seemed to be a probably twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Well, this has been this has been before it was released because this would be. Yeah, uh, but, but remember that the government people get time compression. Yeah, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just I'm just confused by your timeline. Uh, so let's let's agree that there may be some ambiguity there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll if you remind me, I'll send you the stuff after we get offline. But anyways, he was saying this was when they were in the, the trial phases. Um, in the reports that he was reading was. Again, he would be the pro-vaccine guy if I understood his position. But he was actually arguing that the that the that the vaccine companies at the time weren't saying it was going to prevent the spread, um, and it wasn't. You know, it was it, it was it was a lot more of what we think about the vaccine today. Um, and so I was I remember reading his stuff, and you turn on the news, and the news was saying, you know, you know, this is what's going to happen with the vaccine. If it happens, of course, there's, there's a lot of doubt at the time because Trump was president, whether or not you should take it or not. But going through the process, the trial process of the vaccines, what did we know about them? Um, did you have doubts the whole time? Is Once they were out, you started having doubts. How did that process work for you? Because you said that you don't think they're safe or effective. Was that when they're in, in the wild, to use a term? Or was it during the trials you were reading literature and, go, and come to this conclusion? All the above. The key uh, pivot moment for me uh, and remember, I, 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 associated technologies around it. Um, so when this, when it became clear, this was going to be the chosen uh, product, for instance, I called up my old colleague, Peter Cullis, and asked him about the nature of the formulation and what the different constituent components were there for. Because, for instance, I was confused about the polyethylene glycol. Peter Cullis is the guy at the University of British Columbia that uh, has created these multiple companies that are now suing each other that uh, gave rise to the uh, quaternariamine catanic positively charged fats and the polyethylene glycol formulation that's now used um, by Pfizer, Moderna, and CureVac. Uh, so Peter Cullis was, was the godfather of all of this. Um, I was concerned back then about the reason for using the polyethylene glycol in the formulation. And I also became concerned about the bioethics as these began to be deployed. Uh, and um, in particular, the... Uh, use of propaganda, coercion, um, and uh, mandates uh, for an unlicensed product, in my opinion, uh, were clear violations of the Nuremberg Code and the Helsinki Accords and the uh, 
what's called the common rule in the Code of Federal Regulations. And I wrote about that as a concern. That's my earliest documentation in terms of a written document um, on all of this. And that was posted in Trial Site News. Shortly thereafter, Byron Bridal obtained, and this is at the very beginning of the rollout, Byron Bridal, and at this point, I'd assumed that the government was doing all the proper, right and proper things that were supposed to be done in vaccine development that I'd spent literally decades becoming a master at, the rules and regs. Byron Bridal, this uh, Canadian virologist, vaccinologist that has been um, uh, just hammered uh, by his faculty and his university and by the Canadian government, but totally vindicated in everything he's done, uh, pulled the non-clinical data package from the Japanese common technical document, which is to say their, uh, the filing that had been provided by Pfizer to the Japanese government about all the tests that had been done prior to allowance to proceed into human clinical trials. And uh, this Byram uh, read it and came up with his assessment. And then he sent a copy to my colleagues at Trial Site News. And uh, they sent it to me asking me to do an assessment of it with my experience. I went through the document and came to the same conclusions as uh, Dr. Bridal did that uh, the pharmaceutical companies had been allowed to bypass um, normal regulatory procedures in developing the product. And furthermore, I identified that they had used some slate of hand in doing so that seemed to have obscured the true nature of the biodistribution data. That means where the product goes in the body, in the animals, and where it makes the protein. Furthermore, they didn't actually test with the spike protein, which is the norm. Rather, they used a protein called luciferase as their reporter gene, a protein that I had pioneered the use of in cell culture, animal cell culture, and in animals back in the late 80s. I knew intimately and had been very involved in the development, both of the assays all the way through to the whole animal imaging assays. And what the pharmaceutical industry did was they used the least sensitive method to detect the expression of this reporter protein, which is not spike, it's a surrogate. And that is imaging the whole animal rather than dissecting tissue and analyzing each tissue compartment. So it grossly underestimated the distribution. And I wrote, I, I made my review of what had been done in this regulatory package and how grossly wrong toxicity studies, et cetera. Published that in trial site news after I had another more senior and experienced regulatory affairs specialist look it over who agreed with everything that I had said, but didn't want to have their name on it. I published that, um, Byron published his, and that's really what set the whole thing in motion of me being asked to uh, comment on podcasts and in writing, et cetera, et cetera, was 
my speaking out both about the bioethics in the initial deployment and about the uh, clear failures in the uh, regulatory dossier. And that was also what I arranged for a phone call with Peter Marks at CBER about. And uh, at this point, I had not received the vaccine myself. It wasn't available in my area. Uh, when it did come, it was deployed by the National Guard. And uh, I had called Peter Marks, who is head of CBER, the guy in charge of all of this mess at, at FDA, had a teleconference with him in which I spoke about my concerns with the regulatory package. And he had assured me that they had received a more regulatory package from Pfizer and that he saw nothing of any concern and specifically asked me to not make a big fuss about all of this, uh, asked as a fellow professional uh, that I uh, basically pull my punches at the time because they would be coming out with the more complete information soon. And so on the basis of that, I assumed that the vaccine was safe uh, because I'd been reassured by the guy in charge of it at the FDA. Remember, everybody criticizes, they go back in time and they say, oh, why didn't you notice this? Why didn't you notice that? Why didn't you speak out here? You were controlled opposition. No, but what it misses is that this is a flowing data stream. And I and none of my colleagues have ever experienced this level of corruption and propaganda and information control that's been deployed on us. And I've been through, I don't know, eight or nine outbreaks in the past. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. And so all of these experiences, the FDA subterfusion lying, completely foreign to me. Um, in retrospect, there's plenty of evidence that the FDA over time has become a captured agency. But um, for me in the vaccine space, I'd always been operating. I'd known well that the CDC was corrupted, um, having spent way too many hours sitting in chairs listening to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices down in Atlanta at the CDC. But that the FDA would have been so corrupted was completely outside of my uh, mental mental space, just outside of, of any conceivable reality. But yes, now over time, it's become self-evident. You mentioned the, the corruption uh, with the government agencies, but what about the scientific community at large? What did you learn about your peers in this process? I think it's important to... Uh, there, you know, there are those that are lumpers and those that are splitters. Uh, um, I think that it's it's important in so many ways to recognize that the scientific community is not a monolith. Um, and uh, and I would say more. Let's talk about it as the pharmaceutical uh, biodefense. Uh, industrial complex, which also includes academia. Um, in in a broad brushstrokes, it's been extremely disappointing. Uh, the uh, but 
what has come out over time, we saw the behaviors in this uh, group think on a massive scale, these coordinated attacks and denialism. What and, and we we often think that what we see on social media represents the community, but it's not. What is on social media? And many of those have been paid. What's in, but what happens is there's such loud voices that they intimidate anybody else. There's been a, it's been a very complex uh, process whereby um, the, the narrative, and that is, I think, the term we, we really have to start understanding that as a concept, the narrative, and the control of the narrative. The narrative is the battleground. And what we haven't appreciated, many of us, I didn't, is how thorough, how deeply we've become embedded in a unrestricted information warfare environment. And in the battleground is the narrative, who controls the narrative. So we had this recent clip that came out from this convention and uh, consultation between the uh, United Nations and the World Economic Forum in which the United Nations representative clearly stated, we own the science. Mm-hmm. We control the narrative. Right. We're now partnering with Google and corporate media and all of the big tech to control the science. We own the science. And they explicitly said that they have been um, training, quote unquote, and presumably financing, scientists and physicians and, quote, social media influencers to act as their agents uh, in uh, all kinds of media environments. So when we talk about what has happened with my colleagues, uh, I think we do have to reflect a moment and recognize that this concept of controlled opposition actually exists. It is these uh, training programs and the billion dollars of funding that the CDC dropped into controlling the narrative and uh, ensuring this censorship, propaganda distribution. Um, This is a major focus of Plandemic 3 that's going to be coming out. We all forget the huge, huge lobbying campaign that was mounted uh, in in every possible channel to get everybody to accept this unlicensed, poorly tested experimental product. Broadway musical events, all kinds of things. All of these uh, musicians and comedians all paid to promote the story that the vaccines were safe and effective despite the absence of, of adequate testing. Oh, I, I think you're, that's why I always ask my guests when we talk about the subject, where were you in the spring of 2020? It's okay to have shifted your position, but um, I, I think that quite often people want to pretend that things were a little bit different than what they were. But 
one of the things you talk about this narrative and um i wrote a piece in 2020 2021 i can't remember talking about the media's it goes from story to story and so if you go back now i'm in texas and so the the fentanyl um opiate opioid overdose thing wasn't really big that's that's kind of east coast west virginia rust belt story but i remember hearing about it and i remember the narrative the narrative is big pharma is bad big pharma is dangerous they're out to get you they're going to kill you then the narrative went to take the vaccine and i remember talking to some people i know in the media like hey guys you tell the country for years that the big pharma is dangerous and then you tell us to take the vaccine and you never you've never once connected the dots on why this is different big pharma why these guys are good why these guys were different you've never done that and oh by the way if you go read uh books about that crisis opioid crisis you find that how big pharma is treated by the dea is oftentimes they're fined when we would get criminal charges and when you talk about this this narrative thing this is a big frustration of mine which is we live in a world where things happen that breed conspiracies. And then everyone acts like you're crazy to question the narrative when if a drug dealer on the street gives out fentanyl. So so let me interject. When you say everyone, what you're really referring to, I think, is a small number of very vocal people on social media. They don't represent the mainstream, but they influence the mainstream. And uh, so when you say they say you're crazy, just like what happened with the lab leak hypothesis, remember that coordinated attack. Remember, uh, for instance, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, we now know through FOIA emails that there was an intentional decision on the part of Fauci and Collins to try to, quote, destroy them. Uh, what what we have been experiencing as a population, this is so important for your listeners to understand, is uh, 21st century media warfare, unrestricted, no holds barred. It's built on the philosophy that the ends justify the means, and they will say and do anything. So to illustrate the point, you may and your listeners may know that the initial vaccine trials were cut short. They didn't carry on for very long. They vaccinated the control group, which destroyed its utility to get any kind of long-term data. And that's a large part of why we're in such a bad position right now in terms of uh, being able to comprehend the risks of the vaccine is because the vaccine studies were intentionally destroyed. Just like the hydroxychloroquine studies were designed to fail. Uh, They were overdosed. There is another major trial ongoing right now for vitamin D in which they are overdosing. They're administering by injection to African-Americans doses of vitamin D that are known to be toxic. And then a, a group of other trials in which the doses of vitamin D to test the efficacy of vitamin D against uh, respiratory viruses, the doses of vitamin D are clearly underdosed. This is pharma trickery, this business of design-to-fail trials. So um, what, what we have experienced is a coordinated campaign to advance the interests of pharma and many other actors 
that have interests in this whole thing um, from the economic and geopolitical aspects. But um, it starts it starts with understanding when you see that kind of behavior. Uh, I like you was really, really confused by it. Why would it be that you can um, speak truth, cite data, and people are completely, completely resistant to it? They cannot hear it. It doesn't matter. Okay? Um, and for me, that was why I was so excited when I learned of Matthias Desmet's theories. And it turns out that what Matthias Desmet and his book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, people reacted to that and to what I said on Rogan. It was fascinating. These three words in Google lost its cookies, mass formation psychosis. And I was subjected to all these attacks. But it turns out that's a field of psychological research that is hundreds of years old. And no, I did not invent those words. <laughs> they were invented by people like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Um, uh, Carl Jung. So uh, uh, when I learned of that first time I encountered it, suddenly that hypnosis that you're speaking of, of people, started to make sense. And what had happened was that they had been basically hypnotized through a series of events that were then capitalized on by these people that sought to control the narrative that pushed propaganda in every single channel. And your readers and listeners may not be familiar. Uh, we published a Substack, I think last week, there was a recent publication out that covered the Yale University studies, clinical trials that operated to design the narrative, to test the narrative, to get people to take vaccine. These trials were randomized prospective clinical trials that carried on for six months. Okay, so the follow-up was six months, more rigorous than the trials that were done for the vaccines to test different messaging strategies. Um, and through that, they crafted the narrative that they deployed that would influence people not only to take the vaccine, but to influence their colleagues to take the vaccine. So the reason why you've seen this in Texas and all over the country and all over the world, these people that just seem to be totally in the narrative and not able to hear anything else, is because they, are, they have been subjected to an intentional propaganda, information management, information warfare campaign designed to advance a particular narrative, and it's a false narrative. But well, that's but, what's happened. Yeah, and I, I think this is a problem that you're talking about. Um, it, it's on both sides, right? So um, you know, if you were to watch long periods of Fox News or long periods of, you know, CNN or MSNBC, I think that both sides are they're painting these narratives and they skip from one to the other without ever clarifying why they've moved position, what's different about the new position. And, and so we've built a society that's not, and I think about like Rogan, I think Rogan, one of the things that's so appealing to him is he's probably one of the first ones that's like, hey, here's 
this guy who says this thing and here's this guy who said something the complete opposite we're going to talk for a couple hours and you're like oh okay huh there's a lot more common ground here um there's a lot more interesting things than just these three minute talking points um and so we're, we're kind of so covid kind of comes in the midst of these larger conversations that are having us as, as a society and trying to unpack maybe how we've thought about things for so long which has been three minute news clips so to that point uh, we're in the middle of of building a Substack uh, research project that documents the um, escalating collapse of corporate media. Um, we in in for instance, you can look at the research. I don't know if you ever look at the Pointer Institute studies on media, but I recommend them to you. And you're going to find a lot of comfort there, but you're also going to find uh, direct comments. Uh, about uh, me uh, and Rogan uh, as spreaders of disinformation. But uh, what you'll find is that uh, the corporate media itself is aware that their business model is failing. Um, And we are in on top of all the other changes that have been going on and all of the various nefarious activities that have been done um, to manipulate this whole crisis for economic and power reasons, uh, this is the globalism agendas, et cetera. Um, and the you know often stated, uh, we have to censor and use propaganda in order to protect democracy, that all of these independent voices are a threat to democracy. I don't know how many times Mr. Obama has heard this, and they've been repeated in corporate media. People. And um, therefore, it's acceptable to deploy these strategies and technologies. And when you say, you just listed corporate broadcast media, okay? It's so much bigger than just corporate broadcast media now, okay? It's it's the things are being actively memory hold on the internet. The Wayback Machine itself has now agreed to allow editing of the history of the internet to remove references to things that are perceived as being mis and disinformation by the governments, by the World Health Organization, by the United Nations, by the World Economic Forum. We, we are in, in an environment of total media warfare. And you, you have to get, you know, get wrapped around it. And the threat that to is people like you and Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan is specifically called out in that pointer editorial, uh, that pointer analysis. Joe Rogan has built that 11 million plus audience that he has of subscribers over a decade. It didn't just happen. And what's particularly threatening about it is that it is biased towards 20 somethings, which is the most influential uh, market opportunity for advertisers. And Joe Rogan basically owns it. And uh, big media and big tech cannot stand it. Um, That is why all of the impact happened after I had my little podcast, which came on top of Peter McCullough's 
po podcast um, in which there was an attempt to deplatform Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan and people like you and alternative media are a huge threat to governments and to these large corporations who believe that they need to be able to completely control information in order to support their geopolitical and financial agendas. Well, I think Rogan's, uh, if there is a threat, Rogan's <laughs> slightly bigger than mine. But, um, but I will say this, the, the frustrating thing for me is, is I just want to have interesting conversations. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from someone who disagrees with you and someone, you know, I want to hear because for so long, uh, I'm not a, I'm not an academic. Um, I'm not a, you know, I'm not these things. And so for me, it's, it's interesting to hear and have discussions. And that seems what Rogan is about as well. And that's what seems that there's a, there's a lot of Americans who want to hear those things in the corporate media um, that they're, you know, and again, this is the right and left thing. They're really not about those. And I always tell the story about Sean Hannity one time. Someone was on a show and Hannity's like, oh, man, your candidate's so bad. He cheated on his wife, da, da, da. And the guy goes, well, you're supporting a candidate who cheated on his wife. And my guy didn't run on family values. We're Democrats, da, da, da. You know, what do you say? And Hannity goes, it's my show. I ask the questions. And I was like, oh, wait, this isn't actually a political. You're not actually about these values that you espouse. You're just here to, to dunk on people. And it's kind of a, a waking moment that, oh, this is not really. <clears throat> no, they're not. Oh. They're not there to dunk on people. They are there to generate controversy. Controversy generates clicks and views. Controversy is a business model. Um, true. Fear and anger are business models. That's why I talk about fear porn all the time. Uh, and this uh, intentional development of outrage, which we have, you know, we have this term shock jock. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have, you know, and by the way, I just want to say you referred to yourself as less important than Joe Rogan. Um, I'm referring to you not as an individual, but to all of us in alternative media. Um, I reach every single day, day after day after day, about half a million to three quarters of a million, sometimes a million people, day after day after day. That's not nothing. And that plus you plus so many others, is what is destroying corporate media. And the reason is because the big change that's happening here, this is the undercurrent of all of this. If you want to go up, go up to 40,000 foot and look down. We're up above those mountains there behind me, looking down, and we're saying, what's going on? What's going on is a period of major transition in how people get information. And they are migrating to more of a Chinese menu where they select information streams and uh, individuals from a variety of sources. You know, you may like Jordan Peterson and your neighbor doesn't like Jordan Peterson, or you're more likely your neighbor had never heard of Jordan Peterson. Uh, but um, that's, that's the transition, just like you say. And people are going to not just the... AV podcast like this, but to the audio stream that they can listen to while they're commuting or doing the dishes or whatever the particular thing is, um, which is why in our Substacks now we're always recording an audio track voiceover because that's what people want. Um, and that is, that is a huge threat financially and in terms of control 
of this information battlefield. Um, Rogan is just the the biggest uh, the biggest dog on the porch, uh, but there's a lot of dogs on the porch with him. And you're one. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned Substacks. We just moved our podcast to Substack, um, and so um, we will link to your Substack in the show notes. Obviously, you got the new book coming out. Website. Where else do you want us to point people to? Well, thanks. Uh, the many people find it useful that are wanting to do a deeper dive into many of these topics like the world economic forum to go to maloneinstitute.org. And I point you to uh, the uh, Malone declaration, which is all about integrity. Uh, And there you will find on that website, if you care, you can download the most comprehensive spreadsheet of all the World Economic Forum Young Leaders Programs graduates. Okay, it is a huge spreadsheet and you can search names and you'll find Gavin Newsom and Justin Trudeau and Inslee and and Krista Freeland and all those others and all the second and third tier people. Uh, um, uh, So it's good to know as we... You know, in in my opinion, and and this is a part of the mission at Malone Institute, is to reveal these things, uncover them for people, and document them. Uh, We're we're not only in the middle of a major information warfare battlefield situation, but we're part of what's driving that in a very significant way is the Great Reset. Um and is the strategies associated with the World Economic Forum, this group of a thousand, um, it's basically a trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world. And it doesn't just meet in Davos, it also meets in China every year. Uh, And uh, so many other aspects of what's really behind what we've all experienced. And that's what the book is about is uh, it's over 500 pages now um, of, of just essay after essay after essay, including many first-person accounts of what people on the front lines have experienced over the last three years. Remember, it's now a full three years. The data strongly suggests the virus entered the population in the fall of 2019. So we're a full three years into this. So then uh, our daily feed is Getter, at R.W. Malone, M.D., because, of course, I've been deplatformed from Twitter and LinkedIn permanently uh, with no warning uh, um, right before I went on Rogan for some reason. But I'm also on Gab and Truth Social with that same ID at R.W. Malone, M.D. The Telegraph feeds that many people often refer to, is it Telegraph or Telegram? I never remember. I don't go on it. Graham, I think is what it is. Graham, okay, yeah. So there are basically fan sites there that people think are me, but we don't actually have uh, sites on that platform. And they have hundreds of thousands of followers and occasionally they sell vitamins or other things. I don't do any of that. And it's important for your listeners to know that at this point, if anybody is selling anything under my name, it's not me. (laughs) Don't do that. Uh, but the Substack is where we put our our daily kind of intellectual work product. 
and that's rwmalonemd.substack.com. And uh, you don't have to pay. Uh, it's free. You can just sign up and it comes direct into your email. Uh, now, it's important to know that Outlook and the Microsoft products have, have now labeled that as dangerous content. Uh, so if you're using any, frankly, uh, get a clue and get on ProtonMail uh, and drop your Gmail account. But, you know, I, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it think. So for those of you who are still in Microsoft land, uh, know that uh, the Substack will come to you and probably get put into your junk mail and uh, will be late. subscribe we're grateful uh you don't have to but what we do is make it so that the and you may want to use this strategy uh we restrict the comments to people who subscribe and what that does is it really kills the trolls uh and so you just don't have the trollery because trolls don't want to spend five bucks a month uh and so it makes it uh, more of a intellectual safe space uh, for people to talk and discuss. And we read pretty much all the comments on the Substack and learn and listen and often comment back. Uh, then the last one is globalcovidsummit.com, G-L-O-B-A-L-C-O-V-I-D-S-U-M-M-I-T.com. And that's the group that I serve as president for, the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists. And you'll find things like our declarations about uh, the vaccines and about the pediatric vaccines and uh, a lot of useful curated articles. Um, uh, so this is also a little you know, more highbrow, um, doctors talking to doctors um, with curated information. Um, and and, uh, a different focus from our substack. Our substack has really broadened out from just talking about medical issues to all these other things having to do with censorship, free speech, um, geopolitics, uh, how this relates to the medical information and uh, defense and biodefense complex. Uh, um, some fantastic articles a lot of people like about um, human augmentation and transhumanism. Uh, so, so that's the kind of stuff that goes on the Substack. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to punch all those uh, URLs out. Absolutely. We'll put all that in our show notes, which are hosted at Substack as well. And Substack, they are one of the ones that are dogs on the porch as well. I, I really appreciate how they handle, they have a wide. Let's give, allow me to just talk, touch on that. The, Substack is created by a small number of individuals based in San Francisco, and they are not uh, freedom fighters in the sense that uh, we might think of ourselves. Um, but they are fans of free speech. And this model has grown quite strongly. Um, the problem with Substack is that uh, for taking money, it involves Stripe platform in the same sense that PayPal has been corrupted by uh, various political agendas. And uh, likewise, there is a reasonable probability at some point Substack will be purchased by the same globalists 
that control everything else, that are so actively uh, trying to control all information and all media. So that's my worry about Substack. I'm very grateful for it, but I'm uncomfortable that it represents a solution and, and not to pump my own stuff, but we are working on a new business structure to create an alternative media platform that's more, let's call it Web3 ready and blockchain um, because we anticipate and many others do that just as right now, information is being very actively memory hold. And if you don't follow that term, uh, look it up in, in Orwell's book, 1984. That's the origin of the term. Um, so much is being memory hold, as I mentioned, all the way back to the Wayback Machine. Um, that soon what we anticipate is that folks like yourself and myself will no longer be able to be accessed by our URLs. If I can, the uh, internet management um, uh, cooperative is co-opted by the globalists, and it will be at some point, just like Wikipedia has been, then we will no longer be able to be found. We will be deplatformed from the entire internet. And many people anticipate that occurring in something like a two-year horizon uh, that may coincide with the time before the next presidential election. And so we have a fairly short timeline to find some new alternative platform to migrate to. And it could be that we can migrate to that in addition to keeping our substacks open. As you are, but I'm not wedded to it because I know there's a high risk that they will, the owners will eventually be bought out, just like happens with every other Silicon Valley opportunity. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I don't, yeah, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, three years from now, they might sell. So, but for now, you got to give them kudos because they do take a lot of, a lot of heat online. And so, um, okay. Oh, there was, there was an active attempt early on uh, by this gentleman in the UK operating literally out of an apartment that called himself, um, what was the term, Jill? Disinformation. Um, it was like a disinformation institute or something like that, that put out a bunch of attack articles on Substack. And there was a concerted effort in the New York Times and other places to try to force the likes of you and me off of Substack uh, early on. Um, and yeah, the Institute for Digital Hate was the name of the place. <laughs> and it was just a, it was a one guy writing in his uh, apartment. It's now, you know, he's now leveraged that and he has a lot more capital and, um, but, but yeah. if, oh, Center for Counting Digital Hate. <laughs> what a name. What um, a name. Yeah. So, so that's how they play it though is is they come up with these euphemisms, just like uh, Bill Gates wrapping himself in the cloak of being a good guy and just uh, focusing on the interests of uh, saving humanity uh, by getting us all to eat his food. And uh, um, now the latest is he wants us all to use his nuclear power plant designs. Uh, that's, by the way, the... Um, the shadowy thing behind the uh, global cl climate um, issue is 
it appears that there's another Bill Gates agenda behind that having to do with nuclear power. I've got his book right here, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And if you read that, you go, this man understands almost nothing about energy policy, um, at least. With it. It's like he, he doesn't understand public health. It doesn't matter. No. The, the power of this capital that's concentrated in these thousand largest companies and the people that own them are such that they believe, and we've seen it in play, that they can twist, they can warp reality to be whatever they say it is. Um, Thank you for your time and look forward to getting you back on again in the future. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not fun.